0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, the 17th of April, 2012, and our special guest is Tracy weiland gente the author of Society 3.0, How Technology is Reshaping Education, Work and Society. Tracy, welcome.
1: Thank you, Steve.
0: Really delighted to have you here. Tracy is on a telephone bridge. So let us know in the chat if there are any difficulties or if there's a lag and we'll do the best we can. But apologies in advance. Uh, Classroom 2.0 is celebrating its fifth anniversary. I forgot to mention this is a Web 2.0 Labs project and thanks to Blackboard Collaborate. Classroom 2.0 is celebrating its fifth anniversary. If you haven't paid attention, please go to the site and have some fun. We are crowdsourcing a book on the use of social media and Web 2.0. education. It's really a blast. Uh, We're doing a special project with PBS NewsHour, uh, the start of an ed incubator program. Uh, Lots of fun there. Classroom20.com. Coming up at ISTE, our shadow conference, our annual fifth year of doing crowdsourced activities around the ISTE conference. Uh, The all-day-on conference on Saturday called Social EdCon. Uh, there's a special Ed Incubator night that's going to be that Saturday night. There's a Global Education Summit on Sunday, which is also going to be held in conference form. The Bloggers Cafe will be open the three days of the conference. We're going to have a place where you can sign up. If you've, n- if you've never presented at ISTE before, you will be able to. It's really a blast. We really appreciate the latitude that ISTE gives us. Coming up this Saturday is our Social Learning Summit. This is a um, free virtual conference, 73 sessions right now, all on uh, Web 2.0 and social learning. uh, Sponsored by Discovery Education, go to sociallearningsummit.com or go to the Classroom 2.0 website and you'll see a big link right there. Coming up in October, our second Future of Libraries conference, thanks to San Jose State University. And in November, our third global education conference, five days, 24 hours a day, probably 500 sessions this year. It is not to be missed. Really a blast. And thanks to IRON, who have come on as the founding sponsor of that conference. We really appreciate it. Uh, Planned but without dates yet are the Gaming and Education Conference and the Alternate Education Conference, both getting planned and prepared. Anyway, lots of fun. Thanks for our sponsors for these fun, inclusive virtual conferences. Coming up tomorrow on the Future of Education, John Hunter the teacher, and Chris Farina, the director, are, are going to talk about their new movie that's coming out on American Public uh, Broadcasting called World Peace and Other Fourth-Grade Achievements. to look at John Hunter's class where he does this exercise with fourth graders. Uh, the most influential TED Talk of last year, I think, is the award that John got. So it should be a lot of fun. On Monday, Julie Lindsay and Vicki Davis talk about flattening classrooms. Richie Norton on the 25th, about why resumes are dead. Larry Johnson talks about the Horizon Report on May 1st and lots more coming up. Please do feel free to join us, all free all at futureofeducation.com. All of our sessions are recorded both in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3 versions. Mark Tucker talked to us about the five top performing PISA scoring countries in the world and what we could learn from them using industrial benchmarking. If you missed that, really worth it. This book is called Surpassing Shanghai. Jennifer Fox talked to us about a new school she's doing based on uh, strength-based education. Her book, Your Child's Strength, is well worth the read. Joseph Brinney from Vital Smarts, the best-selling author of several books, talked to us about Crucial Conversations, Changing, and the like, Howard Reingold, of course, anyway, lots there. Hopefully something that's of interest to you. So this is where we let you tell us where you're participating from to the left of the whiteboard now. Look for some icons. You're looking for the second one down. It's a star. and You'll click on it twice, and then you'll click on the map, and it's always fun if you put in the city and the temperature. I'm in Park City, Utah right now, and it snowed today. And we are all wishing there had been much more snow in Park City this year. No, I haven't been skiing for the last four weeks since I broke my shoulder in two places. I wish I could say that it was some high-level run, but no, it was quite a beginner run. New Zealand, Japan, South America. Where are you in South America there? Would love to see it. Hawaii, wherever you're participating from. As always, we really appreciate your taking the time. And if you're listening to the recording, thank you for joining us. So Tracy, um, what is your job?
1: (laughs) Thank you for that question. Uh, So, my job is to run the Apollo Research Institute. It is an academic research institute that I created uh, about a year and a half ago. Our focus is on the value, importance, and future of education.
0: I'll just notice that there was a, about a two-second lag that, that came through, so I'm going to be very careful to not talk over you. If there is a gap and I'm quiet, it's because I'm waiting to see if that's the case. Um, uh, what an interesting job. And having read your book, I, I would love to spend a day just watching your reading and workflow style. I mean, How many reports do you read a day?
1: I read uh, quite a bit. Uh, And it is a challenge. In fact, one of the skills that we determine is important for the future is called cognitive load management, which is the ability to discriminate and filter information for importance and how to understand how to use your cognitive functioning with the new tools and techniques. And it's very difficult um maneuvering with so much data and available today.
0: Um, and we'll get to, to cognitive load management and many other really interesting topics. Um, every generation believes that they're sort of on the cusp of the world's history. Um, how real and big are the changes that we're seeing? and um, and is this really as unique a moment in time as it feels?
1: Well, I think so. I think that we're, you know, the technology age has not only started, uh, you know, in the 90s when I was working at Cisco, I really felt it exploding and then it accelerated and then we had a dip. Um, but here I am back, you know, in Silicon Valley, in, a, in which I think is igniting again with all of the new wave of social technologies, um, you know, Facebook's upcoming IPO. There's just so much vibrancy once again, and technology is just taking on a new form factor and taking us to a new level of, of innovation and collaboration.
0: It does feel exciting. I I, I sometimes look at Silicon Valley and I worry a little that there's kind of an overhype and sometimes a surface level approach to things, but I do agree. I feel as though some of the changes that we're seeing are so large in terms of how we relate to each other as human beings, it's hard not to feel like this is a pretty significant time in the history of the world.
1: I agree, and I think that Silicon Valley actually is not alone anymore. You have Silicon Alley in New York, where I am uh, happen to be today. Uh, Austin, by all means, uh, is vibrant with technology. You have the whole biomedical exploding in different parts of the countries as well. So, you know, I think the thing is is that technology is enabling us to do so much more Uh, with each, you know, revolution of technology, you know, advancement, so I'm not scared of it. I I think that we have to think about not competing against machines and technology, but rather how we can compete with technology and machines to do more.
0: Okay, well let's dive in. Uh, The book is organized sort of methodically. There are societal trends. There are work trends. There are technology trends. And then there's kind of the higher ed implications piece. Running through the book, though, were sort of three themes, one of which I'm pretty sure you intended. One I know that you, you touched on, but I don't know how big a theme it is. And one I'm not sure that you would voice the same way that I did. But clearly, the role of women is very important to you.
1: Absolutely I've been uh, studying and researching women since around 1990. I you know my thread is I studied uh, the success of women doing business internationally. I was very inspired on that topic because I was commuting to Asia and different parts of the world in a role of being a manufacturing expert and manager. And I found that uh, there were very few women in the field. Uh, women going overseas was certainly limited. And so that started me on that research journey. And today, you know, and then as I continued in Silicon Valley, I looked at women in high tech, uh, particularly during the boom. And then today, I'm looking at multi-generations of women and leadership. So yes, women are... Is, it's just a very important topic to me.
0: Okay, a topic that you do mention in the book, but I'm not sure that you call out as being one of the major themes, but I felt like maybe it was, is the disparity that's taking place because of financial and educational differences.
1: So the point there uh, that I've, uh, and you have to remember that books are always in evolution. This is the second rev of my first book on .edu and how technology changes higher education. And then I saw that it really was much broader than that. That technology is, you know, impacting work and education and these two are actually converging, work in education, and that there are societal implications too. So we can't say that technology is changing everything. We also have to look at society. And I'm sure there'll be more revisions because at any point in time, books always come out a year after they're written. So the point there is that there is an urgency that I... I feel and that I express to people that you really have to get on board with technology because it is creating um, wider and wider disparities between what kind of jobs are available for people, uh, what kind of skills are being required because technology is impacting every aspect of work. At the same time, education is increasingly required for work. So if we don't keep the pulse on these two areas, we will see disparities.
0: Okay, so a theme that you don't explicitly mention, and these are my words, but that I felt like you were really saying in in many ways was that learning is becoming unbundled from the traditional places that we thought it was taking place.
1: Oh, that's a good. That's a good point, uh, and absolutely. I mean, learning has to happen. Well, let me bring you back to the societal changes. You know, in the '70s, about forty percent of the jobs available required a high school degree, and then if you and this is all from the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, if you fast forward to 2010 or 2015. The number of jobs available, particularly to be available for high school degrees, continues to go down to under 20, around 20% or 22%. So you, you see the natural migration of that jobs require more and more education. And then if you actually look at different industries that are hiring, such as healthcare and IT and education or the STEM fields, Not only is it the bachelor's degree that's increasingly required, but it's also the master's degree, and in some cases, you're starting to see the Ph.D. So so you need to look at that spectrum and say, okay, so so education is required, um, but as work gets more and more complex, you need to continue to self-educate, too. So not only do you need the degrees, but you need to constantly participate in lifelong learning. In how do you keep your technology skills up? How do you keep your leadership skills up? How do you keep your management skills up? So, so it, it is unbundled from the classroom somewhat, but it, what the point is is that not only do you need your degrees, but you also need a lot of other learning proficiencies to keep your skills up.
0: Okay, and you know, I read a lot of books, and you know, that I'll put them on the shelf, and I'll look at them and think, you know, what, what, you know, what was the main message for me? And, and I don't know how I'm going to feel about Society 3.0 in two months, but right now, for me, it feels like you've done this really sort of brilliant and critical piece of reminding us to look at who the students are, uh, and that we have a that we have sort of a knee-jerk perception of when we think of higher ed students that's really actually quite wrong right now.
1: So I did some, uh, so I've been a visiting scholar at Stanford um, since 2000, and in 2000 I was studying the impact of technology on higher education. And then when I returned, I started to look at the impact of technology on the work in education. So let's just talk about education and what I was doing in the year 2000, 2001, 2002. So I compared students' uh, learning patterns, both uh, at the younger level, what you think of the traditional student. And then I also started to compare with adults. And that's the population that I actually uh, have taught more uh, than younger students. And people don't realize the number of working adults or how many adults are out there learning. And, And the point was very basic tell me about how you learn in higher education how do you go to college how do you go to class what works for you so i profiled in an earlier paper and book ashley because ashley really stood out in my mind ashley would say i would go to i go to class tracy and i am a biochem major and Ashley is a young woman and a you know a residential campus student and she says you know so i go to class And I love biology and excel there and then I go to chemistry and I don't excel there so in chemistry I have to work with a tutor so she said but it doesn't really matter to me how I how I work with the tutor sometimes we text sometimes we jump on the phone sometimes we meet face to face sometimes we collaborate it doesn't really matter the fact is, is I just need to get to the tutor she said but then I actually take another step and I go out to Facebook because that's my social technology a circle of friends, and I asked them, is anybody in this class with me? Is anyone thinking about it? Does anybody, does anybody know anybody who was in this class before who could help me? Or does anybody know other people not in our school who might be in a similar class? And she said, and through that network of people, I got myself introduced to a lot of other students and experts, and through them, I found resources, whether it be games, you know, or whether it be attending video conferencing sessions with, with um, chemistry experts or joining uh, meetup groups on chemistry. But basically, you know, that's my path. And what's interesting is that if I went to an adult, for example, well, their path because they didn't have all of the technologies, uh, they have a different learning style. They, they may go to a traditional class in a classroom, but they may require that they meet face to face with someone and that they read a book. Or they go to the library, because that's their pattern. So really what emerged is that everybody has a pattern. And everybody's pattern is not the same. So as an educator, we need to start to observe our students unique patterns and figure out how can we move the right resources to them to help them accomplish their goal and to accomplish their goal is that they want to learn and pass basically your learning objectives so so patterns and and technology today has opened up the door for us to provide so many avenues to students, plus they go find them on their own anyway. So, you know, you're gonna, if you're a video person, you're going to go out to YouTube. If you're a text person, you're going to go get that book. And if you're an online person who has to, you know, uh, read uh, Twitter feeds, well, that's what you're going to do. So I, as a professor, a librarian, as an educator, let me make sure that I can at least point you to the best resources so that you can continue to learn the best way you know how.
0: There's so much here to dive into. And, and I know that we're going to just be looking at the service level. But essentially what I hear you saying is you know, that 90-whatever percent white male going to a uh, University in 1970 it is now in 2012 hardly that um, that that it could be a single mom who's got children who's going back to school it could be people at a at a corporation who are who's where their organization is paying for additional training through university that um, huge changes have taken place in family structure that are pro- that are creating a population of much more non-traditional learners. That's your phrase. And, and because of that, we're seeing the importance of this variety of ways of, of helping them succeed.
1: Well, and there's a lot of different avenues. So let's just touch on, on a couple of those things. You know, demographically, uh, the United States had shifted in what the census, and the first part is really data from the census, the recent census. And uh, you know the profile of the United States. We're now at 15% Hispanic. Um, we have increased uh, people from Asia. Yeah. Actually, the African American population has decreased. So we have shifts in the United States in the demographic profile. Um, in fact, one of the fastest growing groups in education is the Hispanic community. We have many more first-time college entrants. Um, women are are actually larger percentages of people in higher education they're and they're staying longer and pursuing more advanced degrees so you have this whole shift of demographics the second change that you mentioned is um, mobility so what the census documented is that people actually aren't moving as much in the united states and maybe that was caused by housing maybe that was caused by um, the job situation but now we have some gaps because uh, States or metro areas are looking for skills types that aren't really there. So, what does that mean? How do we close these gaps? Right? How do we get the educated uh, skills of of one population over to where the needs are, whether it be healthcare or technology? Um, another area um, that we've observed. Um, I'm sorry, you've mentioned a third one that I just blanked out on. What you
0: about uh, people going to school with children or going to school through their company. Uh,
1: thank you. The family structure. So that's the third. That's a third area that we should just touch on briefly. That the family structure has changed, where uh, you have more single parents, you have partner parents, you have actually more to today single single individuals living by themselves in the United States than we've had before. You have. Um, families moving back with grandparents. right? So you have all of these new family models. So this has an impact on work. Just take a look at work. You have telecommuting that's increased over 400 percent. You have services being brought into the workplace such as food services, child care services, health care services. You have um, a number of arrangements that are created so that we can accommodate our new our new family styles. In the same way, in education, in higher education, you can't expect that people are still going to not work and go back to college full-time on a campus. So you see the emergence of so many different programs, which people on the phone, I'm sure, are very familiar with. You have your hybrid models, you have your weekend models, you have your night models, you have your online models. You have a variety of education models that are surfacing uh, first for access purposes, because people still need to get educated. But two, you have a variety of models that are actually working out uh, to people's different learning styles.
0: I can't tell if you paused or if we lost you.
1: I am here. I paused.
0: Okay, so um, I, I it, you know, again, an incredible amount of data that was just really, really interesting for me. Um, the end result being, you you kind of address some ways in which higher ed could better meet the needs of working learners. And, um, and one that you didn't mention for me was cost. Now, did I miss it, or was that not on your mind as you were writing the book?
1: Right. So no, I didn't address costs. And actually, since the book came out, you can already see how many interesting new models have come out in education. Look at MITx. Um, look at uh, Stanford is a professor from uh, Google, came out with a new model for artificial intelligence classes. You have the Khan Academy. I mean, you have already emerging so many different models, and that was since I've written the book. So no, um, cost wasn't. I really look at what are the factors that are changing work that are going to put New pressures on higher education, right? And so, what what do we have to look at, and what are the technologies that are emerging that we should be thinking about, and what kind of changes will they put in employment um, that we need to respond to in higher education?
0: So, full disclosure is that Apollo owns University of Phoenix, right?
1: So, the Apollo uh, Group is a global education company. They have uh, eight, I believe it's eight universities and colleges in their network that service uh, working learners. So they have colleges and universities in Latin America, in Europe, across in the United States. The one that uh, most people know is the University of Phoenix. and. Um, which is in over 40 states in the United States.
0: So how does University of Phoenix do in terms of flexibility of scheduling and access, support for returning learners, and relevant curricula?
1: So the history of the Apollo group, you know, let me just give you that. was founded by John Sperling, who is a PhD from Cambridge, and he came back to the United States, San Jose, he's actually American, and he was a professor at San Jose State, and uh, he had a lot of neighbors who were in services fields, nurses, police, fire, and they were excluded from education because they worked off hours. And so uh, Dr. Sperling approached San Jose State University, apparently at that time, this is in the 70s, to see if there was an alternative offerings that the school could give for people who were not available for traditional school hours. And the school uh, turned him down, unfortunately. And he went on a mission to find uh, and create, if needed, a university to service working learners. So the University of Phoenix was accredited in 1978. It was founded on a mission of serving adults who were working. Um, since then, the university, in the late 90s, which is um, early 2000s, started an online program. They started the online program because of the students. Students let let John and his team know what their needs were, what their custom needs were, and what requirements were evolving to help them continue their education. So in the early days it was in the classroom, it was at night and weekends. Uh, later on they said we need to have some sort of online delivery uh, so that we can access it access it in, in our homes, after sco- you know, after our kids home come from from school, after work, in you know, a different models. Today if you look at the University of Phoenix, they offer programs in the corporation, so actually faculty go into a corporation and deliver cohort programs there. They have hybrid programs. They have on-campus programs. So here I am um, right across from the Jersey City campus, which is beautiful. And then they have the online programs today what students are asking them for is more integrated use of multimedia and social media in their platforms, and you may have been reading in the news of how the platform for the University of Phoenix and some of the other schools in Apollo has been evolving to be very, you know, embracing the technologies. So it's a university that I connected with actually on the online program. When I was at Stanford, the School of Ed said to me, you really should teach a class for this emerging new model. It's really profound because you think about it, this is before Web 2.0. And so I was amazed at how they were connecting students and adults from around the world in a variety of different disciplines from healthcare to military to education and using a platform where people could actually engage. At that time, it was text, but um, but later on, it became much more vibrant. It was exciting for me because I was working at Cisco Systems at that time while at Stanford as a visiting scholar, and I saw how the invention and the connection of the Internet was enabling so much advancement in so many different fields. I've
0: OK, good. Thank you. <laughs> What's the CB sign that you say when you've done? Full stop or something? I don't know some way of indicating. OK, so I want to go into the work trends, because I thought they were, Roger, they were over. Good, they're over. Um, first was the globalization piece. And I read something in the Huffington Post a week or two ago that stunned me. I was a, an American field service exchange student in high school other than Brazil for a year. And Ed Gregor from Iron published in the Huffington Post recently that uh, in the year 2008, only 1,376 American, U.S. students actually participated in a, in, a, in a broad exchange program. Are we just really missing the boat here?
1: Oh, you know, I... I can't speak for that. I, I don't know what different exchange programs uh, people are or are not participating in. I don't know if they're not, you know, having not read that article, I, I really can't respond to is it a cost factor? Is it is a lack of interest factor? You know, is it, you know, what, what is the factor?
0: Well, Ed goes on to say that only 2% of university students spend time overseas whether or not those statistics are right my impression from the book is you're saying to us we have to really be prepared for globalization and we have to be thinking about education in very global terms
1: yes so I would agree with that we do and so the numbers for global industry um, are in fact I just gave a speech for um, Western international university on the requirements for globalization um, absolutely um, students can get uh, participate in the global economy in a number of ways you know I mean so there are globalized programs out there Western International University obviously is one Thunderbird is known for their programs um, and you can connect with other cultures and other um, countries by using technology. So let me just give you an example. I was showing the students and explaining to them that how at Cisco, when I was working there, they use telepresence, WebEx, and a lot of technologies to connect all their headquarters, right? They had one in in, in India, they had San Jose, and they had distribution c- centers in, in Europe. And you could effectively be conducting business and doing business with my colleagues or with our customers without having to be present in, actually in country.
0: You broke up there, but I think you're over. Um, Okay so also in the work trends you talk a lot about a small business and it's I done. wanted oh, God, thank you I wanted to distinguish between entrepreneurialism and small business and the reason I wanted to do so was that it feels as though some of the character traits and skills that are taught to us in school and especially in higher ed um, Relate to success in sort of traditional work environments, but would be very different than success in an entrepreneurial, self-employment, freelancing, or micro-work environment. Uh, how do you see those two different skill sets? Are they different, or, or, and if they are different, are we not, are, are we, do we have trouble determining which to teach?
1: Oh well, it's just well. Number one, it depends on the business uh, itself. So I'm conducting a study right now on women in leadership, actually. And if you talk to uh, small businesses or entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley, for example, um, many are very focused on technology. And so the key to success is learning two programming languages and understanding how to articulate your elevator pitch to a VC. Uh, because that's, you know, that's the norm in Silicon Valley. Um, If you go to other parts of the country, you know, a startup would be very different or uh, a small business. What I do see, which is very um, positive, is that the MBA, when I went to school, was gearing me up for a manufacturing company and there was this uh... resistance to teaching students anything other than a manufacturing mba it just assumed that every company that you're going to work for is producing and manufacturing their own products and we knew at that time that the, the u-s economy was a services economy and um, and so what's, what makes me happy today is that i see colleges now offering services, uh, programs in their MBAs, offering entrepreneurship, uh, showing, showing a lot of variety now and respect for the fact that the American economy is not just manufacturing. In fact, it's less and less. So I see change, and I see positive change in that direction. I also quite interestingly see a lot of interesting models developing for, this, for technology startups. I see these boot camps. Um, i see short certification programs um, at least there are a lot more a lot more for people to choose from so that you can actually develop your entrepreneur your business That's
0: We've got to give this telephone bridge some credit because it always pauses right before you actually pause so it does a very good job of confusing us okay so um, Um, let's move on to the technology trends because we want to cover those quickly and then sort of talk about the implications for for higher ed. So, uh, you know, it feels like it's taken us some time to see mobile devices as learning devices, but it really feels like there's been a sea change, that we're much, much more interested in that. But the numbers on mobile technology are just incredible.
1: The numbers are staggering on uh, mobile technology. In fact, I just read a statistic that said that Apple sold more iPhones last quarter than babies were born in the world last year. Pretty amazing. Article last: The ability week, for us to yeah. use mobility go ahead, I, I must be: No,
0: our agreement is I'll stop and you keep going.:
1: Echoing on, on you. So, mobile devices are I think you know just part and parcel of everyone 's life so and this this trend will continue. They will get smarter they'll be more feature rich they 'll have much more functionality, uh, a lot of variety, a lot of capabilities, and the convergence of so much technology will happen on the mobile device video, multimedia, social technologies. Gaming. So mobile devices should be a vehicle for us as educators and as employers to be able to connect with our employee base or our student base. I've stopped.
0: <laughs> okay. And you talk about M-Learning.
1: Sure. So M-Learning is basically uh, mobile learning. You know, how, how are we going to deliver learning in a form factor that makes sense for people using mobile devices, right? So many institutions use, they, they follow the same format as they do in the classroom. The text, the textbook to, to the device, instead of thinking through what, what kind of, um, what, you know, what's different about learning information off a mobile device. You know, how much time, how much um, download speed uh, can I uh, how, absorb in chunks just in time, you know, modules, well, you know, all, M-Learning really covers all of those areas that, you know, how do I address a student, how do I address an employee with information when the form factor has changed from a classroom to a mobile device, that's stopped?
0: So the next category in the technology trends is, were, were the collaborative technologies. Now you and I were both at the Horizon um, Anniversary event and, and went through that process of kind of identifying trends and then having them come out in the report. I was really interested that a trend that I felt really perv- was pervasive in a number of the the trends that were up on the butcher sheet at that event, for me was the change in, in the loss of institutional power. But that didn't end up coming out in the report at all. To what degree are collaborative technologies changing? Who makes changes?
1: Oh, I you know, I think collaborative technologies is a, is a key trend right now. Uh, many firms are really seeing the benefits of having employees collaborate with each other. The hierarchical work structure is really giving way to a a flatter organization. And a lot of this is driven by the accessibility and ability for people to connect with each other using social technologies, right? So if you put an economist and a financial person, an artist and a musician in a room together, give them a complex problem, you're probably going to come up with something pretty interesting. So if you can mobilize your workforce to collaborate, and many companies do this on task force, or you may have heard of a lot of the prizes. Companies are offering prizes for, you know, globalized teams to be able to come together and think of a new business or a new solution. So it's it's very um, innovative thinking that's popularized right now. And in in higher education, we should also be thinking through how do we encourage our students to develop this collaborative skill because it's very relevant for them in the workplace. I stop.
0: Yeah, and it does seem like this is a challenge because uh-huh. the skills that we need to um, help develop in students aren't necessarily skills that that our current set of educators are themselves comfortable with. So it feels like we're a little bit at a loss right now.
1: Well, I think if, if universities and college deploy the tools that are similar to that, that work environments are using, um, this type of skill will naturally uh, be developed. Right, so, for example, you're using Yammer or Salesforce Chatter at work. This is the social technologies behind the f- the firewall that work environments are using. This is very similar to using um, whatever social technologies, either it's Facebook or or Blackboard or you know whatever collaborative tools you're making available for your students. They're learning to use these tools and techniques. They're learning to collaborate. They're learning to work on work teams. And that's very positive. And they're learning to do this online, which is actually pretty important at work because that's how a lot of collaboration gets done. That's how a lot of work gets done. So by providing the tools so that students can do this will help them develop the skills that they need for work.
0: So it didn't occur to me as I was reading the book, but I'm going to say something, and I'm interested in your response. Do societal movements change education more than pedagogical discussions?
1: Oh, that's a complex one. One is societal, but I would would add in technology. That's a very complex question, and I, I really haven't studied that deep enough to even be able to discuss it. I mean, number one, one of the findings is, you know, society is changing and it's changing work. Number two is, now you have technology rapidly changing, and that's put changing society or society changing technology. That's a good chicken-egg question. And these two factors are changing work. And then there's other factors that are also changing that are putting, you know, t- pressures on higher education. And all of it could be factored in. That, that's a pretty interesting and complex question.
0: Although my guess is that technology changing work in society then requiring changes in education is a stronger force than we typically recognize.
1: Yes, I, w- I would believe so, um, at least that's, that's my hypothesis is that um, if you look at technology, Moore's Law, people are familiar with that, technology is changing, doubling itself every 12 to 18 months. So that means that if I enter college as a freshman, my technology is outdated by the time I'm a junior. So how, you know, that happens in the workforce. How am I going to address that in higher education? Well, how do I give my students exposure to this? How do I encourage them to embrace it? Um, There's a lot of complex questions that come up that are that technology is creating.
0: Okay, your last one is Immersion, Gaming, and Robotics, the last technology trend. And I'm intrigued by the degree to which Second Life has just kind of fallen off the radar. Uh, is Immersion still a compelling technology for thinking about changes in ed?
1: So, and and I would agree with that, Second Life has, has sort of fallen off. Um, You've got to remember in Silicon Valley, Technologies are constantly being piloted and perfected and piloted and perfected. And then when they go viral, you know that they've hit a nerve where people actually see the value, the use, and the ease of use of these tools. Um, So Immersion will probably reinvent itself or reformat itself or come back in an easier format. you know, Second Life was the first. The first started it. Um, I I get excited when I see new form factors evolving, and then they morph and then they improve. Um, we robotics have been around for a very long time, and now you see it's part of your iPhone. You know, this, You know, the Siri is somewhat of a, a robot. Um, I just was in San Francisco talking to a taxi driver who was pretty disturbed that the Google robotic self-driving car uh, was going to become a reality in San Francisco because Google applied for taxi permits, which meant that what was going to happen to his job because he wasn't prepared for anything else? So these, you know, technologies will incubate and evolve and perf- and perfect, and um, and when they get to the, you know, saturation point where it becomes viral, then it becomes quite exciting because then it becomes mainstream. I mean, think about the iPad. It just uh, came around what two, three years ago and how Facebook is what five to seven years old, YouTube is seven years old. Um, A lot of the benefits that they provide is that they're easy. Uh, And Second Life perhaps wasn't as easy, but at some point you're going to find some pretty easy tools coming out, I'm guessing.
0: So one trend you didn't talk about, and and again, I don't know if it fits into your model, but uh, I got to the end of the technology trends, and I wanted to talk about data and surveillance and kind of the tension between the, uh, the value of data and the lack of privacy and private time that seemed to come with this enormous amount of data.
1: Yes, actually, that's a good point. So I didn't get a chance to cover data, and I didn't get a chance to cover cloud, right? So I was um, somewhat on a deadline and uh, was hadn't fully thought through, through those sections. But what we're dealing with today is big data, right? So there's data everywhere. There's companies um, looking at, you know, what kind of services, what kind of products. You know, it's just amazing how data has really just come into its own. Um, security is, is not something that, you know, I looked at before in terms of, um, because I was at particularly at Cisco, and, you know, we had a practice around security. Um, now I look at security of what kinds of opportunities are there for, our, you know, for students, um, what kind of vocational opportunities are there, you know, what's happening in, in the whole data world that, you know, what kind of new skills would be required. The data scientist comes up a lot, the statistics person, the, the cyber data analyst, um, so all of these are creating a new demand for different skills, uh, different kind of educated um, individuals to be able to participate in 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 a big data world.
0: OK, so let's kind of go to wrap up here. We've got about 10 minutes left. Um, you talk about higher ed and the implications, learning environments, personal learning ecosystems, and you tell a, a pretty uh, Touching story about your own mother-in-law and the different ways that you and your husband researched the cancer. And I thought that was a really good way to kind of demonstrate the different styles of uh, the the learner.
1: Yes, uh, in fact, in fact, I just visited with her yesterday, and she's doing quite well. Um, but I thought that was a very good example to show um, how different people learn. So for the people on the phone, um, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with breast cancer a couple of years ago. Um, She is well into her 70s. She is not technology proficient. She's homebound. Um, Her world, uh, fortunately she worked at Merck where she was an admin, so fortunately she had the Merck uh, annual handbook of medical information mailed to her every year. Um, her world was her church, um, her doctor, who she's had for years, and the Merck Manual. Um, and that was her world of medical information. Um, so she was pretty panicked over the diagnosis and reached out to my husband, her son, to, who, to help her help her figure out what to do. And my husband reached out to me, and what was interesting is my husband and I actually went two distinctly different paths to gather information because I have uh, an academic background. I and am a female. I went to the Susie Coleman, I went to all of the research universities that I you know have friends in medical school. Um, I you know I went down a very academic research path to try to figure out the resources. He, on the other hand, because he's a business person, first uh, went to find the best uh, affiliate, you know, the best physicians in the area who had the best track record. He reached out to the common business communities and even went to eHow and Ask.com uh, to understand how do you how do you manage and uh, really project manage this degree this disease. Um, And so what was interesting was we both used different paths. He was uh, more video-oriented, I'm more text-oriented. He's more on the phone and I'm more on the chat. Um, So we had different techniques in how we got the information. At the end of the day, we came up with the same conclusions. Uh, We found very different resources and different techniques of getting to the resources, but we were able to come up with, with conclusions that would help her. And so then we were were able to bring her down a path, um, and a path of wellness, actually. And we're very excited that she's um, still continuing to do so well. So the point was, is here you had three people. One that was totally disconnected, unfortunately, today, and that's a little bit of the gap that I talk about. Two is two people who are very connected but approach learning and information absorption in, in a variety of different ways.
0: Okay, Um, So uh, where are we headed? Um, Are you optimistic, pessimistic, realistic? Um, What kinds of institutions are going to be able to change, and which ones are likely to struggle?
1: Well, I'm very optimistic about, about the future. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, I've always wanted to live 20 years after where I live now, because I think the future is always so much more exciting than where we've been, and and I love the advancements that technology is making. Um, I think if you're talking about higher education, you know institutions where they change, well, we're seeing that already. Um, I'm intrigued with some of the new models that we're looking at. You know, the Khan Academy is you know just overnight had a new model that was working. I'm intrigued when you see that social technologies take off as fast as they do. I'm intrigued when I see MITx becoming a very popular program and people are engaging with it. So I'm, I am optimistic about learning. Um, my passion, however, is to make sure that people have access. And I think that's very important. People have the ability to progress. Uh, advance their skills, and become an integrated part of moving ahead um, work and the future. And I, I cringe when I still see that there's resistance or barriers to people's ability to learn.
0: Are there institutions that you are looking at right now where you feel like they're doing something that most people don't know about but is really, really smart.
1: Well, you know, I think I listed a few, and I'd have to say that I uh, am affiliated with a a group of institutions that I think are doing some pretty provocative and innovative things, particularly with technology. Um, So I am optimistic that there will be more Uh, doing more things, but um, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing and affiliating with who I affiliate. I think that the Apollo group of schools is outstanding. I think Stanford's outstanding as well, and um, obviously I like affiliating with both groups.
0: So funny, the irony of tonight that I think each time you actually finish, we get the cutoff on the phone. Tracy, that was really terrific. I think we've got time for one or two questions, and then we'll wrap it up. I'm going to put the schedule for um, the rest of this week and in the future up on the screen. If you you have a question for Tracy, please feel free to put it in the chat, or you can raise your hand. And if you posted a question in the chat and I missed it, please feel free to post it again. I'm sorry. Uh, It's very easy for me to coming over. Um, looks like Mary Beth is asking if there's anything in Florida um, and I, I think she actually asked that question when you were talking about the, the Phoenix, University of Phoenix and the other institutions that you um, that Apollo uh, is comprised of. Is there anything in Florida?
1: Oh well the one that um, Apple is very uh, excited about is Full Sail. And uh, Full Sale is uh, where you, it's a school, it's a different model and it's for people who are interested in, uh, I believe it's video, multimedia. Uh, It's actually quite exclusive, I understand, and very exciting. Um, And a lot of students are quite interested in going there. I, I haven't had the chance to experience or visit it, but I know that Apple speaks about them.
0: a bit. Nicole asks, when you look at the cyber data analysis needs, do you think that K-12 cyber learning will begin to understand the need to tap the digital footprint to learn about student needs?
1: I'm sorry, you broke up. I've lost the connection.
0: Are you still? Yes, I'm hearing you.
1: There? Okay, you'll have to repeat the, um, I've lost my connection to your board.
0: So Nicole asks, when you look at the cyber data analysis needs, do you think that K-12 cyber learning will begin to understand the need to tap the digital footprint to learn about students' needs?
1: I think that k through twelve is actually making a lot of advancements in some areas even more than higher education in terms of digital footprints and analysis um, and there's things that uh, we can learn from k through twelve but k through twelve is not my area of focus or expertise it's a completely different discipline and um, so I really can't comment too much further than that except that uh, there are some best practices in there that we can learn from but I understand they have their own challenges of course is broadly publicized in the news and in the press.
0: Okay Tracy, we're going to finish there. Thank you so much for being a part of the show tonight. The book is Society 3.0, How Technology is Reshaping Education, Work, and Society. A a thoroughly researched, very interesting book. Highly recommend it. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Tracy, thanks for putting up with the telephone connection. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank
0: you. You're on the East Coast, so it's late for you. We'll let you go. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm going to turn off the recorder and we'll call it a night.